I want to thank you for coming in the midst of this weird time and uh, following some of the protocol that we are supposed to be under. Uh, no one likes it. It is very inconvenient, but it's the least we can do to try to protect other people who are around us. And so for that sense, out of love for one another, uh, we are, we're doing what we need to do. But it is so great to be back as the people of God in one place. And I do trust that your heart will be lifted up, even though you can't talk to anybody, <laughs> very few people. Uh, we want to make sure that you don't uh, congregate in the building after the service. You need to exit uh, as quickly as possible. But what you do outside, that's your business. And uh, hopefully you can, at least from a distance, encourage one another. As I think about the COVID situation, I think how it has universally demoralized people. Um, maybe not you. It's been a means of discouragement to all of us, but some people have, have that despair about them. Depression is set in. Some have lost jobs and they're now aimless and not sure what they're going to do tomorrow. And the fear of the unknown has grabbed our hearts. The fear of the known or the fear of that which has been described and perhaps at times over-magnified has gripped our souls. And we find ourselves not freely, not willingly following the Lord, maybe as we should, but we isolate ourselves and wonder if this will ever change. That's not unlike the... Uh, day of the resurrection. I find it ironic that on the most exciting day in church history, the church is filled with discouragement. Acts chapter 1 tells us there were many convincing proofs that Jesus was alive, but the disciples didn't believe it. After the resurrection, Jesus appeared to the women at the tomb, to Mary Magdalene, later to Peter, and yet it tells us in Mark 16, they did not believe the messages that were coming back to them about Christ being alive. And sometimes I think that if you have the truth and you don't believe the truth, it's worse than not having the truth at all. And so you and I acknowledge the resurrection, but we need to go a step further and ask ourselves the question, do we really believe it because, because when you really believe something you act upon it so we come to John chapter 20 and if you have your Bibles you can turn there John chapter 20 and here are the disciples as Pastor Doug read a moment ago after the resurrection unbelieving of the reports that they have heard the fact that Christ is alive and they're huddled together confused. They're confused by the empty tomb. They are guilty because all of them know they have forsaken the Lord. When he was going through his time of trial, the scripture says they all forsook him. The Jewish authorities are going to be after them soon. They're convinced of that. They'll try to pin the absent body upon them and make up a theory that the disciples came and stole the body of Christ. And so they're hunkered down behind locked doors because of fear, waiting their fate 
and they believed that soon they could lose their lives. Fear, confusion, depression, the idea of wanting to isolate, to get away from the rest of the world, boy, this sounds a whole lot like what people feel coming out of COVID. But notice, as they are hunkered down and hiding, Jesus appears. We cannot overestimate uh, the importance. We, we cannot even, con with, with clear minds, understand how they must have felt when they saw Jesus visibly before them. Now, the scripture says that they were overjoyed, but I'm sure it took them a moment to understand all that was going on. The one who was dead is now alive. And that's the great message of the gospel. Back during the war that we call Desert Storm, February 1991, a woman by the name of Ruth Dixon received the worst call that a mom could ever receive. Her son, Clayton Carpenter, private first class, stepped on a landmine and lost his life. And the army called to give her the bad news. As any mother would, she fell into great sorrow and grief. She cried and cried for three days until the army called back, and she thought this call was simply to say, you know, the body's coming home at such and such a time, but the call wasn't from the army officials. It was from Clayton himself. He said, Mom, I'm alive. It was a mistake. They had the wrong person. At first she laughed and cried for several more days. Not out of sorrow, but out of almost sheer unbelief and joy. And she said this, what seemed like a hopeless situation turned out to be the greatest day of my life because good news from the graveyard can do that for you. And that's what Easter is all about, good news from the graveyard. Jesus is alive I believe that but do I believe that in my head I acknowledge it but in my heart has it so grabbed me this wonderful truth that Jesus is alive that I act differently and it becomes the center focus of my entire life so this passage is about Jesus appearing to these disciples and giving them what they need. We, we might call these resurrection gifts. They're blessings that flow from the great act of Christ conquering death, conquering the tomb. Now the first gift is what is mentioned in verse 19. Jesus stood among them and said, peace be with you. He showed them his hands and his side. By the way, the only person with wounds in heaven, I think, is going to be Jesus. Here he is in a glorified state, still showing them his hands inside. And the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. I want to know how long it took before their first glimpse of him and until they finally understood that it was him. And their surprise and shock turned to joy overflowing. So he has to say it again, verse 21, peace, 
I leave with you. What was one of the things the disciples did not have? Peace. And what is one of the things that the church is often lacking? Peace. This idea of contentment in God. Peace is contentment, knowing that God is in control and whatever may be happening around me first must be filtered through his love and providence. And by the way, the lasting legacy that Jesus gave to his disciples was peace. I read something once from D.L. Moody. He said, did you ever think that Jesus dying on the cross, as he was dying, made a will, much as we would make a will before we die. He willed his body to Joseph. He willed his mother to John, the son of Zebedee. He willed his spirit back to the Father, but to the disciples, he willed his peace. It's our legacy. They say that today, a will cannot be made that a lawyer cannot break. <laughs> but this is one will that you cannot break. And here it is, John chapter 14, verse 27. Peace I will to you. My peace I give to you. This is our birthright. This is the wonderful gift that God has given to us at the cost of his son. It's not like the world's peace, which doesn't go deep and doesn't last long. This is the peace of Christ, which is, passes all comprehension. It's counterintuitive to what you and I may think and the way you and I may act. It goes beyond human reason, but it is a peace that lasts. It's divine peace. Peace I give you. So... Don't let your hearts be troubled. Now, that didn't mean that things were going to go easy for the disciples. They would be harassed. They would be hounded. They would be thrown in jail. They would be persecuted. Some would lose their lives. And yet, God said, I want you to live in peace. So let me ask you this morning, how's your peace doing? I thought so. <laughs> Mine has been shaken. A time or two. And I think all in, in all of life, not just during a virus, our peace is going to be shaking, shaken, and we must run back to the Savior. We must run back to the gospel. We must run back to the one who loved us so much he died in our place to put our sins forever gone, to clothe us with his perfect righteousness, and give us peace with God. And that is our birthright. Romans 5.1 talks about peace with God. Romans 10 talks about the gospel of peace. Romans 14, the kingdom of peace. Romans 14.19, in believing you will have peace. God wants you to have peace. How come you don't have it? Make it your goal today to receive this gift of peace from the resurrected Christ and navigate the rest of your time on this earth and the days of COVID with this wonderful contentment because you're trusting in Christ.
Isaiah 57, peace to him who is afar off and peace to him who is near. Contentment is wanting what you have rather than having what you want. If you have Christ, contentment is wanting what you have and enjoying that rather than hoping to get something else that will bring peace to your soul. Isaiah 26.3, remember the old King James, thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee. So it's not just, I give you peace, forget about it from now on. No, there is a responsibility for us to keep our mind on Christ and enjoy his peace. Lucy in the cartoon once said to Charlie Brown, I hate everything, I hate everybody, I hate the whole wide world. And Charlie said, but I thought you had inner peace. Lucy replies, I do have inner peace, but I still have outward obnoxiousness. I'm a Christian, I have peace, right? Well, how come you are so annoyed? How come you're so irritating? How come you lack the love of Christ? How come you're so selfish? Those are questions I have to ask my own heart. God has offered us peace. Let's embrace it. There's a second gift, and this comes out of verse 21. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. This second gift is a gift of purpose, or we might call it the gift of mission, of something worthy of our time and our energy. It's a clear calling. I am sending you. The disciples were aimless. They needed redirection. Jesus doesn't come in, interestingly enough, and chastise them for their lack of faith. The Bible says he calls them to a new direction, a new mission. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 20, we are ambassadors for Christ. And so we ask ourselves the question, what is this mission that God has given to us? And the answer is it's the same mission that he gave to his disciples. God is sending us. I think it's valid for each one of us to find out why we were made in a secondary sense. That is, someone might say, boy, I just love building cabinets. I love working with wood. I have some skill and ability in it. This is what I was made to do. Or someone might say, you know, God has blessed me with three kids, and this is all I ever wanted, to be a mom. It's a high calling. This is what I was made to do. And when you're doing what you were made to do, there's a sense of effectiveness and a sense of fulfillment, right? So find out what you were made to do in a secondary sense. In a primary sense, I'll tell you what you were made to do. You were made to glorify God and share his good news with others. C.S. Lewis said, the glory of God and the salvation of human souls is the real business of life. Jesus said, I am sending you, you're an ambassador. 
I'm reconciling the world. The message goes out to everyone. I'm reconciling the world to myself, and you are to take the word of reconciliation. You are to tell a lost and dying, confused and aimless and depressed generation, there is hope in the Savior. You go through the book of Acts and you'll find the resurrection is mentioned multiple times, but often it comes out like this. You killed Jesus. God raised him from the dead and we are witnesses. We're witnesses of the happening and we are going to be witnesses of what has happened to us. That's what God has called us to do. And the mission, notice, is forgiveness. If you jump down to verse 23, the mission is really explained. I'm sending you, and if you forgive anyone their sins, they are forgiven. And if you don't forgive them, they're not forgiven. Now, some people have really misinterpreted this portion of Scripture to mean that placed in human hands is the ability to forgive sin without the grace and pardon of God. But what it simply means is, as apostles, they can declare with power that if you trust in Jesus Christ, you're forgiven, and if you don't, you aren't. In other words, there's a class of people that are forgiven. Who are they? Those who believe in Jesus. And there is a world of people who aren't forgiven. Who are they? Those who don't believe in Jesus. I give you this power. I send you forth. And just as the Father sent me with authority and with clear purpose, so I am sending you. Acts 10.43, all the prophets testify about Jesus that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Acts 13.38, therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. This is our purpose this is our calling. It's not just for the apostles. It's not just for Pastor Neil. It's for you, and it's for me. We're not going to witness in the same way, but we are to be witnessing always by our life and by our words. And God has given to you purpose. There was a sign on a business that said, going out of business, and underneath it said, because we don't know what our business is. (laughs) They were spending a lot of time, a lot of energy, a lot of money, and they didn't know what they were supposed to do. The church is sometimes like that. We don't know what we're supposed to do. And many voices are trying to tell us what the church should be doing. I'll tell you what the church should be doing. Exactly what Jesus told us to do. I'm sending you to share the message of forgiveness in my name. What a great calling. I think it was during the 1958 World Series, the New York Yankees were playing the then Milwaukee Brewers. You might remember the name Yogi Berra. He was the famous catcher for the Yankees. And Hank Aaron was the power hitter of the Braves at that time. And Aaron came up to bat. And Yogi Berra did what he did to every batter. He tried to distract him. 
catchers do that in fact if you I don't know if you can quite catch it but without fans in the stands you can hear what the players are saying if you watch a game today and the catcher's constantly talking at the batter just trying to distract him well Yogi said hey Hank you're holding the ball the bat in the wrong way you're supposed to hold it so you can read the trademark Hank didn't say a thing next pitch Hank Aaron hit it over the left field fence and into the bleachers for home run he rounded the bases and as he came across home plate he said to Yogi Berra I didn't come up here to read <laughs> he knew his purpose and nothing would distract him do we know ours maybe every day you ought to remind yourself I'm called to be a child of God I'm called to be his mouthpiece and a witness of the resurrection and because he's moved in my heart I want to share the good news with others. Every life has a God-ordained mission. There's a third gift that he gives to them, not only this sense of peace and this sense of mission or purpose, but he gives them power. That's my take on verse 22. And with that, he breathed on them. Did you know that this is the only time this particular Greek word is used? He breathed on them. What does that mean? Uh, was he practicing social distance and just from a general standpoint breathed into the room or did he come to each one of them and breathe? I don't know. I would love to see that. But he breathed on them is what the scripture says. Well, we know what it is because the rest of the verse translates it for us. When he breathed on them, he said, receive the Holy Spirit, who is often called the breath of God. Genesis chapter 2 said, after man was made out of the dust of the ground, God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and he became a living soul. We read in 2 Timothy chapter 3 that the word of God is god Breathe. By the way, that's an adjective. The Bible is described as a God-breathed book. And I think in both cases, it's the breathing out of the Holy Spirit. He breathed into man, he became a living soul. He breathed into the Bible, it becomes a living book. And when the Holy Spirit comes into our hearts, we are energized and made alive. We are given unusual ability to accomplish the work of God far beyond what we might dream of, far beyond our natural abilities. And God likes to take the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. But think of it this way too. It's not only the breath of God in the person of the Holy Spirit, but it is, in essence, the continual presence of God because of the Holy Spirit. Remember when Jesus sent his disciples out in Matthew 28 and he said, I want you to go and make disciples of all nations and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And yet literally in body, we don't see Jesus, but he's continually with us because of the Spirit, his Spirit that dwells in us. He left only to return in the Comforter, the Holy Spirit. 
John chapter 14, the disciples are troubled because Jesus is leaving, and he says, I have to leave or the Holy Spirit won't come. So he leaves, and now here he is talking about that same Holy Spirit that gives them continual presence. And that's something you and I should never forget. We have peace so we can do the work of God. We have purpose so we know what the word of God is. And we have power so we can accomplish what we couldn't do in and of ourselves. Now you know the story that Thomas wasn't there that night when Jesus appeared. And verse 24 says uh, that, uh, verse 25, the disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. That's a form of witnessing. And the response is what you often get. Unless I see the marks in his hands, put my finger where the nails were, I will not believe. So when you and I witness to others, often you're going to get this, this turning away, this rejection. And what do you do? You, you and I sometimes lose our peace when that happens. I'm a terrible debater because I take things too personally. And I can easily get angry. Probably more about me wanting to win the point than for me to express truth. I was listening to a video of J.I. Packer, a short autobiographical video that he made just before he died recently and he said I he's a man of amazing intellect and a godly man who knows the word inside and out wonderful theologian in so many ways but he said when I interact with people who don't believe in me I try to be gracious and kind which is exactly what the the servant of the Lord is supposed to be like according to second Timothy should not strive should not battle and fight with others he said, I try to be gracious and kind and let the truth do its work. Let the Spirit do its work. And I just noticed that's exactly what happens. The disciples can't get through to Thomas. He disbelieves. And a week later, Jesus shows up again, and Thomas is there. In other words, in your witnessing, when people reject the gospel, let Jesus deal with them. Let Jesus take over. By the way, he is far more effective than we are. That doesn't mean we're not responsible, but it means that in our passion, don't lose your cool. Don't lose your peace. And let God do the work. And in the end, Thomas, a Jew, proclaims that Jesus is my Lord and my God. So here it is. He gives us peace to stabilize it. Stabilize us. Without it, we're useless. He gives us purpose or mission to motivate us. Without that, we're aimless. And he gives the Spirit to energize us. Without the Spirit, we're powerless. And that seems to describe the church in so many ways. Useless, aimless, and powerless. And Jesus said, let me redirect you. And when we recognize that these gifts are for us, packages wrapped up with our names on them, it's time to open them up and enjoy them. South Church is a great church in so many ways. 
It's because it's made up of some great and godly people. But we still have a ways to go in sharing the good news of Christ. We have a long way to go in being dominated by peace in our souls. We have a long way to go to demonstrate the power of the Spirit within us. But when we know that God is in control, man plans his way, but God directs his steps. When we know God is in control, there is a peace that does pass all understanding. It was during one of the European wars where a train was ordered to carry military dispatches back to headquarters. This was a passenger train, and yet it was ordered to do military work. The engineer took his orders, and he was given the task of taking that train over 60 miles of rough track in less than an hour, which in that day was almost unthinkable. He fired up the engine and went as fast as he could. Went fast around the turns. The cars were shaking from side to side, sometimes turning around corners with deep embankments. And as he went, the people were frightened. The people, as they went over bridges, and the bridges were seemed to be uh, speaking to them about their weakness. They could hear them cracking, and, and they got through safely. But there was a little girl who was playing, and she seemed to be oblivious to all this. She was laughing and having fun. And finally, one of the passengers said, Child, aren't you afraid? And she said, No, my daddy is the engineer. And I trust him. And of course they made it safely or this would be one of the world's worst illustrations. But I want you to know that your father, my father, is in control. And Jesus is alive. Let's start living like it. Heavenly Father, in your presence we bow on this remarkable day where we take a step forward It's as though we're seeing new life in some sense once again that hearkens us back to the resurrection itself. So today, Lord, we pray, energize us, motivate us, stabilize us with these wonderful gifts from the risen Christ in whose name we pray, amen.